sin, law, righteousness, judgment, grace, redemption, heaven, hell. For most people, these eight words elicit emotion. They raise deep questions about one's status with God and one's relationship to Him. They take a person beyond the superficial, and they remind us that there is more to life than politics and college football, 401ks, stock market, and the next Hollywood blockbuster. How a person understands these eight words is profoundly important, not just in the first century context, not just in the medieval times, but in our own age as well. The Apostle Paul certainly knew what was at stake when he wrote the epistle to the Romans. He grasped the eternal weightiness of these matters, therefore... Inspired by God's Spirit, he sought to penetrate the minds and hearts of the Christians in Rome with these fundamental truths of the gospel. If anything is true of the modern evangelical church today, it is a mile wide, maybe two miles wide, and an inch deep. But we did not see Paul, the apostle, putting things on the bottom shelf doctrinally. He put them on the top shelf for these new Christians in these fledgling churches in Rome. And why did he do this? Because he wanted to make mature disciples of them. He wanted them to understand the relationship between law and sin and between the law and the gospel. As a faithful pastor, he labored to make mature disciples of them giving them careful instruction and foundational Christian doctrine and teaching them how to live in the newness of the Spirit. As those who are no longer shackled to sin, no longer enslaved to those crushing demands of the law for salvation, but rather joyfully enslaved to their merciful Savior, Jesus Christ. Christians, Paul teaches us, are no longer in bondage to sin. Christians are no longer under the impossible demands of the law. No, Paul reminded them that through faith in Christ, they died to sin and to the impossible demands of the law. And they were made alive in Christ. This is all Romans 6 and the beginning of Romans 7. No longer united to Adam... They are, by grace, united to Christ, the one who perfectly fulfilled the demands of the law on their behalf and atoned for their wretched sins on Calvary's cross. Christ Church, these are gospel truths, if understood and applied by the Holy Spirit, will transform your lives will change your outlook on how you live your life. For the gospel 
is, Romans 1, 16 and 17, the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. No matter what background you are from, no matter what kind of education you have, no, what, no matter what kind of status you have in the culture, no matter what things, sins you have committed in the past or things that have been done to you, no matter what you may think of your past, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. As the hymnist once wrote, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Over the last several weeks, we've witnessed the Apostle Paul answering his critics. That is, those who drew erroneous deductions from the Apostle's teaching on justification. In particular, Paul's detractors were wrongly implicating him for teaching that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. In fact, what they thought was that because of this teaching, it encouraged lawlessness and ungodly behavior. They charged Paul with disregarding the law of God and for encouraging what theologians call antinomianism. That is a view of the Christian life that's indifferent to the law and to personal holiness. But Paul never once showed indifference to God's moral law or argued that justification by grace alone provides a license to sin. Never did he say this. Never did he imply this, though they concluded from his teaching that he was uh, teaching these things. Rather, what we will be reminded of this morning, Paul labored to provide God's people with a proper understanding of the nature and the function of the law of God, that the law was never intended to be a means of salvation, a means by which we can work our way to God in heaven, but rather as a means of exposing our sin and showing us our profound need of a Savior. Now, I understand that some might be thinking, particularly those who have not been with us for the previous 53 sermons or the previous 700 or so sermons that have been preached from this pulpit over the years by pastors and associate pastors, you might be thinking, how do these arguments apply to me? Aren't these arguments obscure, archaic, arcane arguments from the first century that, that are really irrelevant for our 21st century context? I mean, after all, my computer didn't start this morning. I got real problems. Pastor John, aren't there more practical things to consider? What are you even talking about? Let me take a moment and demonstrate how utterly and profoundly relevant these matters are for our own day. Perhaps you're here this morning, and like millions of people around the world, think that your sincere efforts at obedience and your good intentions will make you right with God 
will make you a likely, a very likely candidate for heaven. Well, according to God's word in the book of Romans, even your best good works fall short of God's righteous standards. All of our best good works fall short of God's righteous standard. Even your best moments and my best moments are tainted by sin. And according to God's word, your good intentions don't cleanse your soul from sin. Just as you were standing, if you were standing guilty before an earthly judge and there were piles of evidence, video evidence showing that you had committed myriad crimes, hundreds of crimes, and it was all videoed, it was all on tape, all of it was clearly there, and, 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 and the gavel was about to come down, and you know what that uh, rendering is going to be, you know what the judgment is going to be, and you say, wait a minute, hold on, I had good intentions, hold on judge, I did my best. And of course, the gavel comes down, and the only word that's heard that echoes throughout the chamber is guilty. 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 You see, good intentions do not excuse us or pardon us from an earthly court where we are clearly guilty. Certainly, they don't at the highest court before our holy and just God, because of our indwelling sin and guilt, we are not capable of obeying God's law to earn eternal life. None of us are capable. It's why Paul says in chapter 3, by the works of the law, no man shall be what? Justified. By the works of the law, no man shall be justified. On our own, therefore, we cannot make ourselves right with God. We cannot save ourselves by our own good intentions or good behavior or moral strivings. We all have sinned, God's word says, and fallen short of the glory of God. But God... Because of his great love for us, sent his only beloved righteous son into the world to live the life that we could not live, namely a perfect one, and to die a death that we should have died. Through faith in Jesus, therefore, sinners receive new life, full pardon, imputed righteousness, and everlasting life. Through faith in Jesus, we are reconciled to God. We are brought back into communion with Him, never more to be forsaken. So, dear ones, this news has always been relevant. It was relevant in the first century. It's relevant in the 21st century. It is as relevant today as it ever has been. Because we are accountable before God. And his son Jesus came into the world to save us from our sins. This is what Paul 
was toiling to teach the church in Rome that they would grow and become mature disciples, would understand God's love, would understand this gospel of grace so that people would not live in constant fear and constant guilt and cowering before God as if God is going to strike them at any moment, but rather would embrace all that God has said he will give them, namely his son who has perfectly provided for their salvation through his blood and through his righteousness. You see, Paul was laboring to make mature Christian disciples. And as his word is preached today, as the the word of God is preached today, we have the same aim, that is to make mature disciples who will be faithful witnesses uh, in the world in which we live. Well, beloved, this morning we come to the next section of Paul's letter in Romans 7, uh, verses 7 through 25. It's a portion of Scripture which has caused no little debate among pastors and commentators throughout the ages. Why? Well, because it is not entirely clear, it is not crystal clear who the I is in this text. Who is the I? Paul over and over says, I this, I that. Who is the I? Is it the pre-conversion Paul? Is it the post-conversion Paul? Is this auto, chiefly autobiographical in nature, or does it represent something else altogether? Well, number one, some argue that this is Paul describing himself, that is, verses 7 through 25, that this is Paul describing himself in relation to the law and sin in his pre-conversion condition. In verses 14 and 15, look there with me. Verses 14 and 15, Paul writes, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. In verse 18, he explains that I have the desire to carry out what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. This, along with several other verses, sounds like an unconverted man. So some would argue for that position. This is Paul as an unconverted man and his relationship as an unconverted man to Not that he's unconverted while he's writing it, but he's referring to himself in his pre-converted state to make a point about the law and sin. Well, then you have, secondly, the position that most people argue, John Calvin being one of them, that Paul is describing himself and his relationship to the law and sin after his conversion. He is describing, in other words, his ongoing struggle with sin. This is indeed the most popular interpretation of this text. The argument is made that an unconverted man would never say something like verse 22, that I delight in the law of God in my inner being, and that there is a war waging within me. Internal wars, we have said many times from this pulpit, don't happen in non-Christians because the Spirit of God God does not live within them. So those are the most well-known interpretations of this text. They both deal with Paul's personal experience and relationship to the law and sin, either as an unsaved person or a saved person. They view this section as autobiographical. But, dear ones, there is a third interpretation, and I am fairly convinced that this is the correct one. It makes the most sense to me in light of the context of chapters 5 through 7. One of the biggest blunders people make in biblical interpretation is they don't look at the context. 
They don't look at the context. And the context is broader than just the few verses we've looked at in chapter 7. The context really is in chapters 5 through 7 in particular, and even, we could say, going back to the very beginning of Romans, in a sense. But it does make the most sense to me, this third view, in light of the context of chapters 5 through 7 and Paul's instruction on sin, law, and justification. So this third interpretation I am calling the redemptive historical interpretation. The redemptive historical interpretation. This view interprets the first person personal pronoun, I, as Paul referring not primarily to his own experience, although it's not totally excluded. There is an existential sense to this passage, but he is, he's not referring primarily to his own experience. It's not primarily autobiographical in nature, but as Israel's collective experience under the law. When Paul talks about I, he's talking about the collective experience of Israel under the law. One commentator, John Fesco, explains that this is a rhetorical device which is often used in the first century to make a point. Again, he writes, quote, Paul presents Israel as a microcosm of all humanity under the law, whether Adam under God's command in the garden or Israel's life under the Mosaic covenant, end quote. The focus in these verses, I believe, is not on Paul's personal struggle with sin, but Israel's and all of humanity's struggle with understanding the relationship between sin and the law. It's a long question. This this section is a long answer to the question made in verse 7, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means, Paul writes. He then goes on to explain in this section why the law is not sin, but that sin is sin and sin uses the law as sin is personified to show sin and to expose sin and to make itself known, but the law is not sin. The law is holy. But dear ones, whatever interpretation one takes on this chapter, This one thing is crystal clear, that the focus here is not primarily on Paul's experience or the experience of the believer, but on the relationship between law and sin. Many of your Bibles will actually have a heading in this section which says something like this, the law and sin, or the relationship between law and sin. Also here, Paul shows us how God saves us from both the condemnation of the law, and the guilt of sin through Jesus Christ our Lord in verses 24 and 25. Thomas Schreiner states this, quote, Although Romans 7 is one of the most disputed and complex chapters in the entire letter, it is generally agreed that the main issue informing the chapter is the relationship between the law and sin. So that's one massive Uh, interpretive uh, point that needs to be understood as we carry on in these verses, in verses 7 through 25, that this section is dealing with the relationship between law and sin. And when Paul 
refers to himself, refers to this personal pronoun I, he's doing so as one of a, a, a collective Israel who is under the law of God and, and, and understanding themselves under this law and under the law of Moses. So let's then quickly move through these four points in my outline. You'll see these in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. The first point is that the law is powerless to save or to sanctify. The law is powerless to save or to sanctify. Paul, you will remember, begins this chapter by using an illustration. He does so to make the important point that we cannot be given to Christ. We cannot be united to Christ if we are still married to the law. That is, if we are still beholden to the law as a means of salvation. It's always astounding to me how some will reject the full payment of Jesus Christ for some kind of a halfway house of Christ plus my works equals salvation. Give me Christ and give me the law because then I have reason to boast, many believe deep down inside. Because when we believe in sovereign grace, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and what He has done, and nothing of what we have done, we have no reason to boast except for in the cross. Amen? But if we are still beholden to the law as a means of salvation, if we still think that salvation comes through obedience to the law, through good works, then we cannot be given to Christ. We are not in Him. We need to be, as it states earlier in this, in this uh, chapter, we need to be released from the law as an impossible taskmaster husband before we are given to Christ as a loving husband. The law cannot save us. It was never intended to. Only Christ can. Paul has already made it clear in chapter 3 and verse 20 that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Later, he writes in chapter 4 that, quote, if the adherents to the law are to be the heirs of salvation, then faith is null and the promise is void. If we can be saved by the law, there's no reason for faith. There's no reason for the promise. There's no reason for Christ. No reason for a mediator. Paul makes the same point elsewhere in Galatians 3, 10 and following, that for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Again, that's Galatians 3, 10 and following. The law is powerless to save us from our sin and guilt, and it is powerless on its own to sanctify us as Christian believers. This is another error that some Christians uh, will make, and, and it often stems from bad teaching, that Christ saves us from our sins. He has forgiven us of our sins, but now it's up to us to strive in our own strength in the Christian life. We, we, we pull up the bootstraps, and we get to work, and we're kind of on our own on that. But that's not true at all. In union with Christ, we shall be sanctified. And God, by His Spirit, will empower us to live the Christian life. But the law of God, the Ten Commandments, 
suddenly that mirror is turned around and it's like, whoa. Yes, my life is full of sin, full of blemishes, full of wickedness. The law is like a mirror showing us all the blemishes in our lives to reflect back to us our sin and that we'd see our great need of grace, that we would look to the one who is the fairest of 10,000. The law was never meant to be a means of salvation from sin. Of course, Paul's Jewish critics should have been more ready to admit that Israel had failed miserably to keep the law. Over and over again as a nation, they broke it and proved themselves to be guilty before God. Whether it was in the wilderness, whether it was in the time of the judges, whether it was in the land of Canaan or the post-exilic period, time and time again, Israel rebelled against God and his holy law. Instead, Paul's critics looked to the law as a means of earning eternal life. Remember earlier on in Romans, they, they boasted that they had the oracles of God, that they possessed the law, and thus, because they had Jewish blood and possessed the law, that they were right with God. And Paul is saying, no, no, both Jew and Gentile are sinners and need God's grace in Christ. Now, with all of these things in mind, look with me again at verses 7 through 11. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if, I, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Let's unpack Paul's words here. He first writes in verse 7, Without the law, I would not have known what it is to covet. Here Paul is showing that before the law was written down and given to Moses, God's people would not have had either the clarity nor the clear command regarding the sin of coveting, as an example. Why choose coveting as his example? Why choose the 10th commandment? Because the 10th commandment deals specifically with the inner life of the person and exposes the depths of our sin. Moreover, this commandment, when broken, also makes us guilty of breaking all the commands. When you covet, you are essentially breaking all of the commandments together. When a person covets a a person's spouse, a neighbor's spouse, or possessions, or life, when a person is discontent and dissatisfied with with God and all of his good gifts, the depths of his or her sin is exposed. Paul is saying that it's not until the law was given to Moses that the command was so clear, which caused even greater rebellion in the heart. Of the sinner. For when fallen men are given rules, it's their sinful inclination to break them. After my, I guess it was during my sophomore year, we were walking back uh, from the practice fields at Clemson, and it was pouring, just a downpour. And we were all walking back to the 
uh, Jervie Center, uh, the Clemson Athletic Center, and um, we looked over at the baseball field and saw there was a big giant tarp on it and a sign saying, stay off the tarp. What's the first thing we wanted to do when we read that sign? Get on the tarp. It's the largest slip and slide in the history of the world. And so we uh, proceeded, the entire team, uh, over 20 of us, to strip down uh, to the barest minimum and to slide across this tarp. And so we were sliding back and forth, laughing. It's pouring, raining, having a blast. And then from behind the dugout comes the Clemson baseball coach. A very famous man, by the way, who was not happy. And he was yelling and uh, uh, using all kinds of explicatives and just fiery mad. And so we all were kind of laughing and scared and grabbing our stuff and running into the locker room. We got in there, and we were all laughing and breathing hard. And then the door slams open. What are you doing? Ah, this tarp's worth $10,000. There's one ripping it. You're going to pay for that. And then he turns to me. I'm standing right there at the door. Where are you from, son? California. That figures. course, three or four of the main culprits were already in the bathroom and hiding out. And, uh, but thankfully, there, was, uh, there were no rips or tears in the very expensive tarp. But that's what we want to do, isn't it? We want to break the law in our natural selves when we see the law set forward. That's Paul's point. It's what he says, isn't it, in verse 5 of this chapter. For while we were living in the flesh... Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Chapter 5, verse 20, which so much of this is a commentary on. Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Sin uses the law to stir up and excite sin in natural man. Simply put, when a command is set forth, our sinful flesh wants to break it. And this reveals how sinful we really are. I believe so much that's going on in our culture today is actually a, a, a widespread collective reaction of hatred towards God and his commands. Next, Paul explains that sin is dead apart from the law. Look at verse 8, the final part of verse 8. What does this mean, that sin is dead apart from the law? Again, it doesn't mean that there was no sin in the world between Adam's fall and the giving of the Mosaic law. No, it means, again, that there was a kind of fuzziness to one's conception of what sin is and how God's law is broken. This is the meaning of Paul's words. Sin is dead apart from the law. It's like it's hidden. The ignorance of the law made it as if sin was dead and the conscience less afflicted. But then he writes in verse 9, that once he was alive, then the law was given, sin became alive, and now I'm dead. Here Paul's expressing the experience of Israel and the experience of every person who's given the law of God. Living apart from the law with an ignorance of the law leaves a person metaphorically alive because of their ignorance to the law. 
in the sense that he or she is unaware of the gravity of their sinfulness and accountability before God. However, when the law is given, sin becomes alive, that is the clear awareness of it, and it makes the sinner dead, that is fully aware to the gravity of sin and its consequences. You see Paul's argument here? He then writes in verse 10 that the commandment that promised life proved death to me. Most believe that here Paul is taking us back to the Garden of Eden, alluding to the time when God gave Adam the command not to eat of the tree of good and evil. Obeying this command in Adam's state of innocence would have brought life. That commandment, in a sense, would have brought life if he obeyed it. But he didn't obey it. The command which promised life brought death. Now, under the fall, we no longer look to the commandment for life, for it only exposes our sin and brings about the fruits of death. And then finally, we read here that sin seized an opportunity. And this is the second time we see this mentioned, that sin is personified, seizing opportunity, and deceived me and killed me. We hear again, we have Garden of Eden echoes, we're hearing. Sin deceived, deceived Eve, deceived Adam, and then it brought death. The wages of sin is death. Again, some are charging Paul with teaching that this must mean that the law is somehow sinful, but that's not true at all. And so Paul demonstrates, number three, the purity of the law and commandments. Look with me at verse 12. Look with me at verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So it's, this section is bookended, isn't it? The law isn't sin, is it? By no means. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is not sin. Just as God is holy, righteous, and good, the law is holy and righteous and good. The law reflects the holiness and justice and purity of God. It reflects His nature. And so the law can't be sinful because the law is God's Word. It comes from God. One commentator writes that, quote, this affirmation reflects a traditional Jewish understanding of the law's divine origin, end quote. And we see this clearly in Psalm 19, verses 7 through, 4, through 13. Let me read Psalm 19, 7 through 13 for us. The law of the Lord is perfect, re- reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And so the law is not sin by no means. The law is good and righteous and perfect, even as God is. And he's given it to us to expose our sin, to aggravate our sin, and to show us our deep need for a Savior. And so this brings us to our final point, the preeminence of Christ and the gospel. If all of these things are true of us, what hope is there for sinners who are fallen in Adam and have inherited his sin nature and are born with this original sin, 
What hope is there then for sinners who are guilty of breaking God's law every day, who know the Ten Commandments, who know the command, thou shalt not covet, and yet break that law every day, and by doing so, break the other nine? Often. What hope is there for those who are dead in sin, with sin being alive and aroused in them? What hope is there under the law for those under the law who are shown to be guilty before God and His righteous throne? Dear ones, the answer to these questions are not only the main point of Romans, they're the main point of the Bible. And Paul highlights the answer to this. And the point of all of Scripture at the end of chapter 7. Look with me at chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who will deliver me? Who will deliver me from my countless transgressions of God's holy law? Who will deliver me from the impossible demands of the law? Who will deliver me from covetousness, pride, lust, and idolatry? Who will deliver me from a lifetime of failure to uphold God's law? Who will deliver me from the penalty, the just penalty of all of my sins and eternal damnation in hell? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord who underwent that pain and suffering on the cross at Calvary, who lived that perfect life I failed to live, and who died that atoning death that I, I, I should have died. He did it all for you. He did it all for me, that in Him we would have life and salvation. So let us, dear ones, place our faith and trust in Jesus for our salvation, not the law. Let us not put our hope or our trust or our faith in the law. Let us not think that our good works make us right with God. Only Christ makes us right with God by grace through faith in Him. Amen? Only Christ. When you wake up in the morning, do not think, Oh, if if I can only obey God a little better today, maybe He will love me more. Maybe I'll even go to heaven. That is looking to the law for salvation, and the law will only condemn you. Cursed is the one who is under the law, Galatians 3 says. But thanks be to God that God did not leave us married to this impossible husband who seeks perfection, but rather sent his son to die for sinners like you and me to fulfill the law, to fulfill all righteousness. And then as a perfect righteous substitute on the cross at Calvary to give his life for you and for me, to bear every sin we have committed, to pay the penalty to the, to the last farthing he has paid for your sins. So how do you live now in response? With gratitude. Not with a license to sin, not with a negative view of the law. No, we love the law because it shows us how to honor and to glorify God in our Christian lives. And we know we'll never obey it perfectly, but we seek to obey it for His glory. And as God grows us and matures us, we die more and more to sin and we live more and more to Christ. Every part of our self 
that's been corrupted by sin, a, 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 an impulse of new life is placed within us by the Spirit and, and our minds and our wills and our affections and our members, we are, we are set free from sin and now we grow and we are being sanctified. But all along the way, we know that our salvation is only through the work of Jesus Christ. United to Christ by faith, may we look to God's commands, to his moral law, not as a way of salvation, but as a guide for grateful, a grateful Christ-centered life and an increasingly obedient life in the Spirit. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word as a means of grace to show us Christ, to show us that the law cannot save nor can it sanctify, but by your grace, Lord, in union with Christ, these are glorious benefits, regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification. And we thank you, Lord, that the law is a tool in the hands of the Spirit to guide us into a life that honors you. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the means of grace. Lord, feed us now as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I invite you to please stand as we sing together before the throne of God above, number 277.